Last time we were uh, basically analyzing a number of different uh, issues and uh, we were doing that as a sort of semi-debate, semi-discussion, which I thought was very good because it uh, gets you guys to actively participate rather than just passively sit here to uh, try to figure out the issue of uh, whether if one has uh, understood the subtle selflessness of uh, persons that uh, one has uh, actually automatically understood the coarse selflessness of uh, persons. In other words, when we understand that uh, self is uh, uh, that a substantially existent self, which is not static, and uh, no, try that again. When we have understood that a self is not self-sufficiently knowable, whether we've understood that uh, that kind of uh, self cannot be uh, of course self to be refuted, a static, partless, uh, independently existing self. And we saw that uh, when we didn't uh, formulate the uh, issue, the question clearly, that uh, we got confused and uh, that uh, it was uh, quite difficult to really untangle everything that was involved in uh, the discussion. The reason why we started to discuss it was uh, because the prasangakas uh, do not consider refuting the course selflessness of a person asserted by the lower schools, but uh, just start with uh, uh, refuting the subtle selflessness that the uh, other schools call subtle, and they call the prasangas call it coarse selflessness of a person. So the conclusion that we came to, despite having a lot of difficulty uh, formulating exactly uh, the topic of the uh, analysis, was that. Uh, um, you had to have, those prasangika assumed that you had already understood the uh, coarse selflessness of a person, that that seemed to be necessary in order to uh, actually uh, deal with or refute the uh, subtle self of a person. So during the week, I worked out a more systematic approach to the analysis, and uh, just as a way of uh, learning. How do we actually go about doing a systematic analysis? I uh, thought to uh, discuss and uh, present that uh, tonight. So the basis for of refutation in uh, for a course impossible self of a person's uh, in the Sautrantika, Chittamatra and Svatantrika schools is one that is a substantially existent self or Atman, you know, a person that is static, partless, and independently existent as asserted by the non-Indian Buddhist tenet systems. So in order to actually understand what is uh, being refuted, you know, Tsongkhapa always emphasizes, and uh, coming from Shantideva as well, you can't refute something unless you have actually 
you know, properly identified the object to be refuted, then uh, the major non-Indian, non-Buddhist Indian schools that uh, the uh, Buddhist tenet systems uh, debate with are the Samkhya and Nyaya systems. So uh, we need to look at uh, what uh, they say in order to be able to really understand the refutation. But uh, when we've refuted the course impossible self of a person, what have we established? We've established that a substantially existent person is non-static, has parts and cannot exist independently. In other words, what we've actually established is that a person is a non-congruent affecting variable, substantially existent non-congruent affecting variable that is neither a way of being aware of something or a, a form of physical phenomenon, and that it's an imputation on the five aggregates. And that type of a person, a substantially existent non-congruent affecting variable, as an imputation on the five aggregates, that is the basis for the refutation of the subtle impossible self of a person in these three tenet systems. So we've gone from, you know, a self that is uh, still substantially existent. We'll have to take a look at what it means in these other systems and that static partless and uh, independently existent, and now we say it's not like that, but it is a static having parts, dependently existent thing, and among those type of things that are like that, it is a non-congruent affecting variable because it's imputation on the five aggregates. So then, what is, uh-huh? Could I ask a question, if you mean? Yeah. This, uh, I thought that, uh, for example, the Svatantrikas, uh, also the Chittamatrin, that they impute the person not on all the five aggregates, but only on mind, on consciousness. Well, so the uh, actually, the Vaibhashikas say that... Uh, well, it's not only the Vaibhashikas. Everybody says that the self is imputed on the five aggregates as its basis for imputation. The issue becomes where do you find the, the uh, individual defining characteristic mark of a person? Ah, okay. And for the uh, Vaibhashikas, it's found separately from the five aggregates, and because you don't cognize all five aggregates at once, you cognize just the person by itself. So they say that a person is uh, not imp imputationally, imputedly knowable. Whereas uh, the others, um, Sautrantika, Chittamatra, and Svatantrika, say that, well, the individual defining characteristic mark is found for Sautrantika and Svatantrika in mental consciousness and for Chittamatra in uh, the uh, foundational consciousness or storehouse consciousness, Aliya Vijnana, because no matter what, there's always the uh, mental consciousness or Aliya Vijnana present. That doesn't mean that it's that the self is only imputed on that. Mm -hmm. I see. So there's a difference there.
Prasanga is going to say that you can't find the individual defining characteristic mark on the side of the aggregacy, on the side of the basis of imputation. Nor can you find it in the person either. So that's a further refinement of that. Um, so now, the object to refute it by the subtle selflessness of a person is the self-sufficient knowability of a validly knowable person that is a substantially existent, non-congruent, affecting variable. There's an imputation on the five aggregates. So we know that it's substantially existent and we know that it is a, a non-congruent affecting variable, so it's not a form of physical phenomenon, it's not a way of knowing something, but there are some substantially existent things that are self-sufficiently knowable and some that are imputedly knowable. So we want to now understand that the self is imputedly knowable, it's not self-sufficiently knowable. That's what we're refuting. Yeah. Well, does non-congruent uh, non affecting variable means that in a cognition it affects, you know, everything? And it's, or Jeffrey calls it a compositional factor, so it's one of the things that composes, uh, you know, cognition. But it does not share five things in common with the consciousness and uh, mental factors in the cognition. And those five things are defined differently by Vasubandhu and by uh, uh, Asanga. But uh, basically they don't share the same um, focal, uh, I mean they're not aimed at the same thing, the hologram isn't the same. This, no, try that again. For the person. The person doesn't give rise to the mental hologram. Uh, that's the main difference, actually, of uh, why it's uh, uh, non-congruent with the uh, others. It uh, is going to uh, be simultaneous with it. Um, it's aimed at the same external object, according to um, what should we call it, Vasubandhu. If we look at Asanga's things, you know, it comes from the same karmic seed. But uh, the person doesn't give rise to a mental hologram, only these mental factors and consciousness give rise to a, to a hologram, mental hologram. That's the main difference. So, because you, can, you have to say that uh, a person, you know, I see things and my, you know, the I see things, visual consciousness sees things. You can't say that I don't see something. There's this uh, difference between uh, subliminal cognition and manifest cognition. Um, with uh, manifest, uh, both the person and the consciousness are aware of the object, cognize the object. In uh, subliminal, the consciousness 
perceives the object, but the person doesn't. So when you're asleep, for instance, uh, your hearing consciousness, you know, the sound comes in, but you don't hear it. But if the sound wasn't, uh, in a sense, uh, registered with the consciousness, then you'd never be able to uh, hear the alarm clock. So that's a subliminal cognition. So there's this, this difference. Okay. Um, so, uh, subtle selflessness. We have a self, we have a substantially existent non congruent affecting variable as a person. We want to refute that it is self sufficiently knowable. So correct refutation requires not only correctly identifying the object to be refuted, self-sufficient knowability, but also the basis for the refutation. That is a substantially existent, non-congruent affecting variable. The basis is not a substantially existent, static, partless, independently existing self. And the object to refute it is not the self-sufficient knowability of such a person. You know, so we're not talking about the self-sufficiently no. You know, self-sufficient means that it doesn't require cognition of something that it relies on immediately before it. Um, so it's saying that uh, we what we were trying to refute then is not the self-sufficient knowability of the course Atman that's being refuted. What we want to do is, is uh, what is the self-sufficient knowability of what's left over after you've refuted that. Now, with the refutation of a subtle, impossible self of a person, one establishes that a validly knowable person is an imputedly knowable, substantially existent, non-congruent affecting variable. So now what Prasangika comes along and wants to uh, refute is that uh, the substantially established existence of a validly knowable person that's an imputedly knowable, non-congruent affecting variable. So you see we have three pieces here that are being you know refuted. First you want to establish that it's a... Uh, non-congruent affecting variable person and that is substantially existent and could be you know I mean there are many you know there are other phenomenon that are non-static and uh, I mean, this is what one has to investigate. Are there other phenomena that are non-stat, partless, and, and independent, non-independently existent? We want to focus then on first establishing that uh, the self is a non-congruent affecting variable. Then you want to focus on the fact that it is imputedly knowable then you want to focus on that it's not substantially existent. 
You know, so these are the the three levels of uh, what you're refuting. So let's look at this a little bit more systematically of why Prasangika doesn't discuss the core selflessness of a person as asserted in the Sautrantika, Chittamatra, and Svatantrika systems. So the object of refutation, you have to analyze each of the components that are substantially existent phenomenon, static, partless, and independently existent. So the object of refutation of the subtle selfless of a person cannot be a No, that's not right. Um, well, first, let's look at the substantially existent phenomenon. In the non-Buddhist Indian Samkhya school, the term substantial entity is associated only with the various perturbations of primal matter and not with persons. In the Samkhya system, you have primal matter and you have persons. They're two completely different things. Primal... Uh, Matter is then, you know, it's made out of a balance of the three qualities, rajas, sattvas, and, and tattva, and uh, they are perturbed. In other words, they're out of balance, and all the different uh, material things are made of that. And in the system, a substantial entity is, so is something that's matter, a person that is not a substantial entity because it's immaterial. So by the... Samkhya definition, a substantial entity, is uh, an immaterial one. I mean, is a material one. But the Buddhist asserts that persons are, they assert the same thing, that a person is not a material phenomenon, because they define substantially existent entity as one that performs a function. So Samkhya and Buddhism do not have a common definition for a substantial entity, as a basis for discussing whether or not a person is substantially established. Remember Shanti Deva explained that you can only have a debate about a certain thing if uh, the two sides agree on the definition of what you're talking about. So you can't really debate with the Samkhya's whether or not the self is substantially existent, because they don't share the same definition of substantial existence. The non-Buddhist Indian Nyaya school also accepts that persons are immaterial, so that's okay. But in their system, the term substantial entity is used for nine types of basic entities, including persons. These are phenomena that are the bases for qualities and activities, and they're connected with these qualities and activities by various types of relationships, something like two balls connected with a, a stick. So. Although Nyaya and Buddhism both assert persons as substantial entities, again, they don't share a common definition of a substantial entity. You know, for Nyaya, it's something that stands by itself and connects with qualities and, uh, you know, act activities. And for Buddhism, it's something that performs a function, so they're not talking about the same thing at all. So to answer, to ascertain that... Uh, Non-substantiality existent persons cannot be the object of refutation of the subtle selflessness of persons, can only be done within the context of the Buddhist definition of substantially existent 
substantially established existence. So you can only really, you know, it's not something that uh, you can really debate about in terms of these other systems, whether or not substantially, the self is substantially established because Buddhism has its own definition. That's the conclusion of this part of the analysis. So, okay, the self has to be, we've understood within the Buddhist context because we make our own definitions that uh, the self is substantially established. So that's part of the object of refutation. Now, what about uh, the uh, object of refutation of the subtle selflessness of persons cannot be static? Samkhya school asserts that persons as static phenomenon are not the agents of actions, only the body is. But because bodies have the quality of passive consciousness, they experience happiness and unhappiness as a result of the karmic actions that the body does. So this is, uh, you know, it's like the body, the person doesn't actually know anything. It only know it has consciousness, but that consciousness doesn't know anything. Comes into a body, uses the material brain, as it were. You know, there they call it a material mind to know things and it doesn't actually do things it comes in and uses the body to do things remember this is one of the things that's refuted by buddhism that there's a self that comes in and uses the body to, and the mind to know things and to do things but nevertheless uh they do say that uh the self is going to experience the results of the actions that uh the uh, body does, it does with the body. The non, the Nyaya school also asserts that static persons, so this is, you know, the static persons don't do anything, according to uh, Samkhya, but they experience something. So they experience the results of uh, behavior. The Nyayas say that static persons uh, which don't have consciousness according to their uh, system, don't do anything by themselves, but only in contingent conjunction with an activity, which is a separate entity. Contingent means only when certain circumstances are present, then, uh, and namely, that uh, one's ignorant of the fact that the person doesn't have to be associated with activities, then, you know, there's the connection with activity. Persons uh, do not experience happiness and happiness by themselves, but only in conjunction with the mind particle. So Vaibhashka refutes that persons do not do anything. They perform karmic actions and they experience their results. Thus Vaibhashka refutes that persons are static. So, according to the Buddhist Tenets, persons do something, they're substantially established. That means that they do something. So, in that sense, they will refute the Samkhya and the Nyaya positions that persons don't do anything by themselves. Although Vaibhashka accepts this static phenomenon as substantially existence because they perform the function of being the focal cognition of the valid cognition of them, they refute that uh, static phenomenon 
or substantial existence in the sense of performing something, but an action, but Satranska refines that, and they say that they do perform uh, actions. Thus, a person that is both substantially existent as defined in Buddhism and a static can't be a basis for the refutation of a subtle selflessness of a person. In other words, if you take the Buddhist definition of substantially existent as performing a function, it can't possibly be static, the way that the non-Buddhist schools say. So what about the persons cannot be partless? Samkhya, <laughs> Samkhya asserts that static, non-substantial persons are partless. They're not made up of uh, the three universal constituents, Rajas Samasan, Rajas Tattva, and Sattva. Those are the components only of primal matter. So Samkhya says that they're partless. Nyaya also says that their basic selves are persons or basic entities. They're also partless. But Buddhism doesn't assert any substantial entities that are both static and partless. What are the partless things that uh, Buddhism asserts? Everything that it asserts that's partless is non-static. So you can't have something which is both static and partless from the Buddhist point of view. Partless particles and partless moments of ways of being aware of something are asserted both by Vaibhashika and Satrantika as the only types of partless phenomenon, but they're not static, they're non-static. And Satrantika asserts them as being substantially existence in the sense of performing the function of constituting grosser material objects. So they do something. So since there's no such thing as a static, partless, substantially existent phenomenon, substantially existent self that is static and partless can't be the basis of refutation of a subtle and possible self of a person. So you see how we're systematically going through and eliminating how you couldn't possibly have as the object of refutation of the subtle self, the coarse self. What about uh, that uh, persons can't exist independently refutation that persons uh, can exist independently by themselves. Samkhya asserts that when one understands that a person is not the same as the physical faculty of sentience, one detains liberation. Remember, the self comes in and uses this physical faculty of sentience, so like a brain, and when it understands that it doesn't have to do that, it's not the same as that, not the same as mind, then it becomes totally disengaged and separate from it, from primal matter and all its uh, perturbations, and then it exists by itself as purely passive consciousness with no object. I mean, it's interesting because Chittamatra has that uh, uh, you have deluded consciousness which takes the self to be the same as the foundation consciousness, because the individual defining characteristic of both the foundation consciousness and the self are found in the uh, foundation consciousness. And if you understand that, uh, uh, that it's not like that, you know, you're free of a lot of things, but it's not sufficient for attaining liberation.
you know, Buddhism, uh, Chinamatra has much more complicated assertions for, uh, you know, you have to understand the subtle selflessness of a person to attain liberation uh, by Chinamatra point of view. So anyway, Naya asserts that when one understands that persons are only contingently associated with qualities, including consciousness and actions, and not necessarily associated with them, so it's only out of ignorance that you're associated with them, then you attain liberation. Liberation is called total divestment, in which a person exists independently of everything with no consciousness at all. In Buddhism, nothing exists independently on its own. Substantially existent non-static phenomenon having parts, and even static phenomenon like space having parts, can't exist independently of their parts. Substantially existent, non-static, partless moments of a way of being aware of something can only exist as parts of a cognition in conglomerate with other types of primary consciousness and other types of mental factors. They can't exist independently on their own. You can't just have anger. Anger has to be part of a cognition of seeing something, thinking something, and mental factors of attention and concentration and all the other things that can't just exist on its own. Even if we talk about just one tiny moment of it, partless moment of it. And uh, what about physical phenomenon, these uh, partless particles? So, Vaibhashika asserts you have substantially existent, non-static, partless earth, water, fire, wind, sight, smell, taste, and uh, physical sensation particles. And they're actually subparticles and exist only in con uh, as parts of a conglomerate, an eight-part spherical particle that can't exist on their own. So you have these uh, spherical particles like we have. I mean, not necessarily spherical, but uh, electron, proton, neutron. They, can't, they don't exist by themselves. They only exist as part of an atom. So they have something a little bit similar to that. I mean, although obviously you can, you know, Generate an electron and separate it from the atom, but uh, uh, I'm just using that as a gross example. So you say in a way that uh, the smallest particle has uh, like these uh, like facets or characteristics, uh, the eight things you or six things you just mentioned. Well, what they're saying is that uh, the uh, an Earth particle will have, you know, what something is depends on which of these particles are dominant. Mm -hmm. So if it's solid, the earth particle will be dominant and it will also have a sight, a smell, a taste, and a physical sensation. If, you know, it's uh, water, then uh, what doesn't it have? It doesn't have a taste or a smell. So, I mean, there are different things that will be more dominant or less dominant according to what type of object it is. And a single particle also. You're talking about a single particle? They're talking about the conglomerate. Okay. The conglomerate, I think you're confusing it with the uh, discussion of particles in Kala Chakra. Mm. Could be, uh, where the particles have these qualities themselves. Okay. But uh, in any case, um, Sautrantika 
uh, does not assert um, substantially existent, non-static, partless sight, smell, taste, and physical sensation particles. They only assert uh, substantially existent, non-static, partless earth, water, fire, and wind particles. But they too don't exist independently, but only as parts of conglomerate particles. So maybe there, in the Sautrantika system, these are qualities of the different particles. I'm not quite sure mm. of that. But they don't exist. Assert these sensory qualities as separate particles. But still, they have to be part of a larger particle. Um, then you have partless, substantially existent, non-static, partless, physical, cognitive, sensor particles. You know, the cognitive sensors of the eyes, you know, like the rods and cones and the sound-sensitive cells of the ears and so on. These things are also partless particles according to the Vaibhashika and Sautrantika systems. But uh, they have to consist, they have to exist as parts of a body that are made up of the other types of particles. They can't exist independently on their own. Um, and function and perform a function. It wouldn't be substantially existent if you just took an eye out and put it on the table. Um, sound particles, they also have substantially existent, non-static, partless sound particles can also exist, um, can't also, can't exist independently on their own. Um, try that again. They can exist on their own, not as conglomerates, but all Buddhist tenet systems emphasize refuting the Vedic assertion that sound is impermanent. That sound is permanent. God, I can't speak clearly. I'm sorry. Vedic always says that sound is permanent. The sound of the Vedas. It's not produced by anything. It's eternal. Buddhism says, okay, sound doesn't uh, is a tiny particle that is not part of a, you know, these larger atoms, but that also is, uh, it's not static, it is uh, non-static, and it, it can't exist totally on its own because it's produced by something, it can't exist independently of what produces it. So also it's not independently existent. We are in Sautrantika now, yeah? as well, let's say yeah. sound is produced by something. Mm -hmm. No, the sound particle. The sound particle, the sound particle is. I've never heard. Of right. Sound no, particle. the sound particle would be vibhashika. Oh. You wouldn't have a sound particle from uh, Sautrantika, as far as I know. Hmm. As far as I know, I've only seen one little reference that explains that uh, the uh, Sautrantika don't accept um, the sensory qualities as part of separate particles. So, since there's no such thing as a substantially existent, non-static, partless, independently existent phenomenon, we've, what we've refuted is that this combination of a static, partless, and independently existent phenomenon can't be substantially existent. So a self that is static, partless, and independently existent also can't be self can't be substantially existent, and therefore it can't be the object of refutation of the subtle, impossible self of a person. 
And then Chittimatra and Svatantrika assert that there's no such thing as any validly knowable phenomena that's partless anyway, let alone a static one. I'm sorry, this is so complicated, but uh, what I'm trying to demonstrate is how you go about systematically establishing <laughs> our thesis. So, since there's no such thing as a static, partless, independently existent phenomenon whose existence is substantially established because it performs a function, then such a phenomenon can't be the object of analysis to determine whether or not it's self-sufficiently knowable. It would be like analyzing whether or not the child of a barren woman can walk on its own or not. Do you follow that? Can you repeat the last one? Not, not the barren woman, the, the first one. There's no such thing as a static... I mean, Buddhism refutes that there's no such thing as, you know, each of these, well, we'll get to that, that I don't want to say it incorrectly, but the combination of something static, partless, and independently existent, that combination can't go, of such a phenomenon can't go together with it being substantially existent, performing a function. Mm -hmm. So to look at that type of phenomenon, which is substantially existent, and to try to figure out whether it can be known by itself or not, is futile, because it's like looking at the characteristics of, trying to determine the characteristics of something that doesn't exist. Like the child of a barren woman, can it walk or by itself or not? Can it be known by itself, or does it uh, require something else to know it? Does it make any sense to analyze whether uh, the hair of a turtle is black or yellow? Doesn't make any sense. So, to analyze whether or not <laughs> something which can't possibly, which is a contradiction, you can't have all these qualities in one object. Yeah, but what, what's now the, what's now, what does it have to do with the question we started with? The question we started with is whether or not if If you refute, if you refute, no, to refute the subtle selflessness of a person, mm -hmm. does it assume that you have understood the coarse selflessness of a person? Mm -hmm. And we're coming to the conclusion that only what is left over by the refutation of the coarse selfless of itself is actually the basis for the refutation. So if you actually are analyzing the basis, the, the, the correct basis for the refutation, 
of the subtle selfless of the, of the self. You've correctly identified the basis. You've correctly identified the core selflessness of the person. I see. Okay. It couldn't possibly be anything else. So in a way it's included. So if you if you refute correctly the subtle selflessness of a person, you have to but so you if have you, to you have to in the process you have to right. you understand in the process that there can't be a cause. Right. If you if you correctly identify the object the basis for the refutation of the self, well, in order to analyze, you have to take, in order to refute the self, subtle selfless of a person, you have to take the correct object, the correct basis. And the point being that it can only be that basis. There can't be any other, you know, you can't have another combination of these four aspects, substantially established, non-static, having parts and being uh, not independently existent. Now, in the Sautrantika system, other than partless particles and partless moments of ways of being aware of something, and in the Chittimatra system and Svatantrika without, and Sautrantika without any, uh, the Chittimatra and Svatantrika without any exception, all forms of physical phenomenon and all ways of being aware of something are substantially existent phenomenon that are non-static, have parts, and can't exist independently of their parts. Right? Put aside the partless particles. If we look only from the Chittimatra and Svatantrika point of view, all substantially existent phenomenon are non-static. All of them have parts. All of them can't exist independently of their parts. In this regard, persons as non-congruent affecting variables are the same as forms of physical phenomena and ways of being aware of something. So the understanding of the subtle selflessness of, the, of persons is needed to differentiate persons as non-congruent affecting variables from other types of substantially existent phenomenon and to refute that they're self-sufficiently knowable like forms of physical phenomena and ways of being aware of something are. Mm -hmm. In other words, if you've established that something is self that is substantially existent, it's non-static, has parts, can't exist independently of its parts, just establishing that by itself, you haven't established that it's self-sufficiently knowable. I mean, that it is not self-sufficiently mm -hmm. knowable. Because, because ways of being aware, parts of physical, uh, uh, types of physical phenomenon, and non-congruent affecting variables all have these, these four characteristics. They are all self, and they are self-sufficiently knowable. No, the point is, you want to refute in order for in order, you want to be able to distinguish persons from these other phenomena mm -hmm. that have these same characteristics so you have to understand that they are not self-sufficiently knowable the way that ways of being aware of something and forms of physical phenomena are 
That's why you need to differentiate it. So, in order to gain a correct understanding of the selflessness of persons, as asserted as subtle selflessness in Sautrantika, Chittamatra, and Svatantrika, and as coarse selflessness in Prasangika, you have to have prior knowledge of what the Sautrantika, Chittamatra, and Svatantrika consider the coarse selflessness of persons. But there's no such thing as a static, partless, and independently existing person. Otherwise, you don't have the correct basis for the for the refutation. All right. So, if you refuted, in short, if you refuted the substantially existent static as self, partless, and independently existent, you haven't refuted that it's self-sufficiently knowable. Right. If you've refuted the course self, you haven't refuted that it's self-sufficiently knowable, because it's not pervasive that substantially existent phenomenon that are non-static half-parts and can, and can exist, cannot exist independently of parts, are not self-sufficiently knowable. For example, a table. For example, a table. Hmm. If one has refuted that persons are not self-sufficiently substantially existent phenomenon and establish that they are imputedly knowable substantially existent phenomenon. You've refuted that persons as substantially existent phenomenon are non-static half-parts and cannot exist independently. In other words, if you refute the coarse self, you have not refuted the subtle self, but if you refuted the subtle self, you've refuted the coarse self. That's the, uh, the basic thing that uh, is here. Now, what about if you understand that something is imputedly knowable? It's not pervasive that something is imputedly knowable, or that it's non-static and substantially existent. Because categories are imputedly knowable, and they're static, and they're not substantially existent. But it is pervasive that if something is imputedly knowable and substantially existent, it's non-static. Again, if something is... If something... You have to work, you do the pervasions here. If it's imputedly knowable, it's not pervasive that it's non-static and substantially existent. Remember, because you know, the, the self is non-static and it's substantially existent and it's imputedly knowable. Well, are there, are there any other imputedly knowable things that are not like that? Sure, categories. Categories are imputably knowable, static phenomenon. They're not non-static and they are not substantially existent. And it's not pervasive that if something has parts and cannot exist independently of its parts and is imputedly knowable, that it's non-static and substantially established. For example, categories have parts, because they can have different individual items that uh, uh, serve as their basis for imputation. And categories can't exist independently of a basis for imputation, but they're static and not substantially existent. 
So although categories, imputedly knowable, have parts and cannot exist independently of their parts, they are neither non-static nor substantially existent. The only imputedly knowable phenomenon, phenomena that are also non-static and substantially existent are non-congruent affecting variables, such as persons. So, in terms of working out the logical pervasions, it's only we're left only with uh, uh, a uh, substantially existent, non-static, <clears throat> having parts, not being independent, and imputedly, uh, you know, that type of person that is uh, imputedly knowable. So then you have to, right, what type of imputedly knowable phenomenon is non-static, has no parts, no, is non-static, has parts, and cannot exist independently, it's only something like a self. So. That has to be the specific object for the prasangika refutation of a subtle selflessness of persons. In other words, the substantially substantial existence of it. That is uh, how one analyzes in a more uh, organized way. I mean, it's a little bit not only a little bit complicated, it's a lot complicated. But uh, anyway, I just wanted to show you since uh, the, uh, in order to really gain an understanding, a deep understanding of something, you have to analyze, you know, analytical meditation. And to do analytical meditation, you have to do it quite systematically and work out pervasions. This is the way that uh, Buddhist logic works. You know, we haven't done it completely in the terminology that uh, the Buddhist logic does it. But uh, using a little bit simpler way of, uh, of describing it. I think with... Um, we can still with analyze. The, tenant, the differences in the different Kenan systems, yeah. that some of them are so subtle that it almost sounds like it's just really tiny subtle wording or differences that it's hard to exactly then for a long-term memory to really uh, keep the subtle differences right it is difficult to keep the subtle differences one has to work with each of the tenant systems one by one which is what we had been doing and as the Tibetans do you have to memorize the definitions and only if you've actually memorized them can you actually start to uh, put these things together and then do any type of comparison. You can only compare two systems if you've understood both of them. Yeah. So it's a long type of process, but then, but you know, if you have the perseverance to go through all of that, 
then you can sort of see the progression you know what we've what I've been trying to to point out the progression of understanding that each of these systems gives us something which is very usable and here what we have uh, been focusing on throughout this whole series is the understanding of the voidness of persons of ourself so how do we go about deconstructing the self you know our false image of the self which is the basis for our disturbing emotions and this becomes very interesting because you have when we have the disturbing emotions try it again when we have an incorrect view of the self of, of ourselves and of other people then we can either have uh, distur you know disturbing emotions together with disturbing attitudes or just disturbing attitudes without disturbing emotions what's a disturbing attitude there are five of them but the one that's the most significant is the uh, deluded outlook toward a transitory uh, network that's where we throw out the net is how I explained it of me and mine onto the aggregates you know either focusing on the aggregates so they you know I am the aggregate you know I am my body I am the mind or that uh, I'm different from it and I come in and I control them and they're mine or it can be focused on the self this is the prasanka view that I'm the one that is possessed you know identical with it and I'm the one that uh, controls them but in any case it comes down to about the same so that's there from the basic ignorance now add on to that disturbing emotions and then you get destructive behavior when you act with uh, anger or greed and attachment or naivety about cause and effect basically but uh, even if we don't have disturbing emotions you know I'm helping you out of complete you know love and compassion still we could have this uh, false view that uh, the self is different from the aggregates you know I'm using them to be nice to you and so on so we have to overcome this view that there is a self that is some you know static entity partless you know can exist by itself and it comes in and it uses the body and the mind 
Okay, so we've gotten rid of that. And we have to... Uh, um, so, okay, so the self is an imputation on it. But uh, this imputation, and it's not physical, and it's not uh, a way of being aware of something. Okay, so I've got that. But we think that it can be known by itself. You know, I'm, you know, you, you see yourself in the mirror, that's me. You know, we look at our hand, that's me. So that also can uh, cause us to, uh, what should we say? On the basis of that, I mean, that's underlying when we have greed, you know, or anger. I, you know, I'm angry with you, so I hurt you, but it can also uh, underlie when I'm nice to you. We don't have the disturbing emotion. So all of that is focused on this kind of me, this false me, what we're going to refute with subtle selflessness. So it's interesting when you look at it, because uh, there's such a thing as uh, coarse disturbing emotions and subtle disturbing emotions. Now, according to the non-prasangika schools, if you've understood, well, Vaibhashka says, if you've understood the coarse selflessness, you attain liberation. Satrantika, Chittamatra, and Svatantrika say that you have to understand the subtle selflessness. You attain liberation. Now, Prasanna comes along and says, no, you've not attained liberation. You've gotten rid of the gross disturbing emotions. And this, you know, grasping for a self that can be known by itself. That you've gotten rid of, but you haven't gotten rid of the grasping for things to be substantially existent. In other words, there's something on its side that establishes it, its existence. So you have what they call subtle disturbing emotions, subtle attraction. Not into, so it becomes very interesting to start to think about what in the world are they talking about? So it would be an attraction to something which is not based on me. I want to have it as such. You know, a me that, you know, can be without the body and, you know, all these sort of things. But it's just based on grasping for self-established existence. So it's not so personal, in a sense. At least this is, you know, my thinking about it. 
trying to think about that. You know, can you, if you, what would be an example? Is that the difference between the arhats and the, the Buddhas? Because it's the difference between the arhats and... No, it's the difference between the... No, because an arhat, according to Prasangika, has to have understood the Prasangika refutation of the self. So the arhats, according to the te other tenet systems, what they call arhats, they're not real arhats. It's what they have. So, can you get angry and somebody yells at you? Or you see somebody do something that you don't like? If you get angry, you're taking it personally. I don't like it. If you don't take it personally, you could still have anger, couldn't you? A very subtle type of anger. This shouldn't happen. Or think that something is inherently attractive. Not so much that I want it. I don't know. I mean, these are things to analyze. You know, what I really hope to instill in you know, the material like I presented it today is the importance of analyzing, of really thinking about these uh, topics, these points. You know, if we want to go deeper and deeper, the only way to do it is to try to figure things out. The Tibetans do it primarily with debate, discussing it with somebody else. Because they, you know, somebody else is going to really push you to understand and point out contradictions and stuff much more than you'll be able to do that yourself. But we need to be able to do it ourselves as well. That's what you do in analytical meditation. So although you need concentration to be able to stay with the analysis, as His Holiness the Dalai Lama always says, the analytical meditation is the most important. That's the essential thing. You can do it even if you have not perfect concentration, but pretty good concentration to be able to stay with it. And it's interesting the way that the Tibetans debate is that they debate with a hundred other people, you know, at the top of their voice debating right next to them, which forces you to concentrate. Otherwise, you can't hear your partner, what they're saying. So it's a very clever way of uh, developing concentration while analyzing. Very clever. So that's how they do it.
So anyway, let's end with a dedication. We think whatever understanding, whatever positive forces come from this may go deeper and deeper and as is cause for everyone to achieve the enlightened state of a Buddha for the benefit of all.